Uh, we thank you so much for this week, for this day. We thank you for rain and clean air. And Lord, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, especially we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is found therein, the unfailable, undeniable, eternally uh, standing realities of who you are and what you've done and how you've revealed yourself to mankind. We are so grateful for these things. And Father, we're thankful to be able to join together this morning and look at your word and learn about you and sharpen each other and be an encouragement, Lord willing, to one another. We pray that those things would all take place, that you'd be glorified, and Lord, that we'd be better equipped to be more useful for the building up of your church and uh, the glory, giving glory to you that you deserve. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to stay in this. Sorry, Jerry. I know. I know. We're just going to. We're going to stick. With, oh, perfect. The splash zone. Perfect. Um, what's, a, uh, what's a passage if we're wanting to renew our minds with the reality that we need to keep good care of our heart? Where would we, where would we turn? If we need to, to guard our heart or keep our heart with all diligence... Proverbs 4, yes, yes. What if we were uh, wanting to walk through with a young man who was interested in marriage but seemed to have all the wrong ideas about what it means to be a husband and what it means to be a, a wife? Um, where might we turn to to help bring clarity to what God has to say about that? Ephesians 5, excellent, excellent. If we wanted to find a concise description of both God's general revelation to mankind and God's special revelation, where might we turn? Psalm 19. All right. He got to the page in his notes. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about those passages more in the coming weeks and, and additional ones as well. And some weeks we'll spend a little bit more time looking at some passages. Uh, some weeks we're going to spend a little bit of time on some other things. If you turn to your resources section of your folder, and go to the laminated page. This morning, we're going to just kind of do a, a, a overview walkthrough of something that the, the target for us is to become competent in all of these things. Uh, come on in, guys. There's snacks and coffee. Hopefully, you got some. There were handouts on the table and folders. If you, did, if you have not gotten a folder yet, uh, grab one. And there's a, both a handout and a new man worksheet. And you should have both of those. So you should have a, a sheet like this, and then also a handout that's pretty lengthy. The outline today is pretty lengthy. Um, should have grabbed that on your way in. If you didn't, feel free to grab those. Okay, on the laminated page, just to kind of chart a general timeline, on the Old Testament dates, do you guys see that on the laminated page? Old Testament dates, at the top you see creation, roughly 6,000 B.C., God created the world. The flood happened roughly 4,000 B.C. And then 2166 B.C., you see Abraham enter the picture. Okay, everybody tracking? Then you see you have this progression. Abraham, he had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Then you had Joseph. You can kind of get a, a gauge of how things are pr progressing in your Old Testament and in, in the historical timeline. And then you get to 1446, and that's when you see the Exodus take place. So the Israelites, the Jewish people, they've grown in Egypt exponentially. They went from a small group of people to a couple million in a matter of 400 years. And so they've, they've uh, grown tremendously, expanded tremendously. And then you get into the time of the judges, roughly 335 years. Then you've got the initial three kings of Israel as Israel is joined as one kingdom. And those kings are first Saul, right? Saul did not have a heart after God's heart. He had a corrupt heart. And we see that in his reign. Uh, Israel wanted a, a king. Like all the other nations, they didn't want to yield to God as their ultimate king in a theocracy, but they wanted a, a monarchy, and so they appointed Saul because he was a head above the rest, and, 
and all these other things. And, and so they appoint Saul, and they see the trouble that gets them into. And so then God gives them David. David did have a heart after God's own. And then David had Solomon, and then Solomon reigns. And then towards the end of Solomon's reign, that's when the kingdom divides. And you have that happening in 931 B.C. The kingdom divides into the northern tribe, which was referred to, it was continued to be referred to as Israel. And then you had the, the, the southern tribes referred to as Judah, although sometimes in, in uh, prophetic books they're, they're referred to as Israel as well after the northern tribes had been taken into the Assyrian captivity. So that's where you'll see when God is addressing uh, Judah post-Assyrian captivity in 722, there's times in, in, the, prof in the prophets where uh, the reference is to Israel, but the northern tribes have been taken into captivity. That's why understanding these dates in the context of when different books is written can be helpful to know who the audience is. So that's just a general ca uh, timeline. The Assyrian captivity, the Assyrians came in, they took the northern tribes into captivity. And then uh, a little bit later, a little over 100 years later in 605 BC, you have the first phase of multiple phases of the Babylonian captivity. And that's when Judah is taken into captivity. Judah consisted of what two tribes? The easy one is the tribe of Judah. And then the other one was Benjamin. And so then the northern tribes consisted of all the rest. Okay, flip to your page over to the backside. This is a, a pictorial timeline to see key events of the Old Testament. I'm just going to walk through it for us this morning. And in future uh, gatherings, we'll, we'll just keep, keep reviewing it. You'll have an opportunity to review it for, uh, with one another. So we start with creation at, at roughly what time? in history, 6,000 BC. Then you have the fall, right, in what chapter? Genesis 3. We find as we get a little further, God's assessment of man's heart is that they were, uh, it was only evil continually. And we see that right around the time of Noah. And then we have the flood. God judges the earth. They settle they start to uh, gather together and, and reproduce and so forth. And God tells them to do what? To, to spread out and subdue the earth and fill the earth. They gather together, seek to make a name for themselves at the Tower of Babel. And so God disperse, disperses them. There's the dispersion, confounds their languages. And uh, mankind is, is dispersed. What they would not do in obedience to God, God brings about circumstances to cause them to do. However... We see God make a promise to Abraham that he would be raise up one nation, one man to become a nation to bless all the other nations. And so God promises uh, Abraham and makes a covenant with him in Genesis 12. We see that in 15 and 17 and 19. And so there's this covenant that God makes with Abraham to be become a nation that from him will come a, a nation. Now, to be a nation, you need three primary ingredients, a people a constitution, and land. Are you guys with me on the diagram, top right? So what God does is he leads his people into Egypt. They are taken into captivity, and they grow exponentially, as I just mentioned, to 2 million people, and they've got their, they've got their people. Uh, God leads them out of Egypt through the Exodus in 1446 B.C., brought about by 10 plagues. That's what that lightning bolt with 10 on it is, the 10 plagues. So God leads them out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. At this point, they have their people established. And then they continue to go to uh, Mount Sinai, where God gives Moses their constitution. He gives them the law. And now they have their constitution. So they've got their people on Mount Sinai. They're given the law. They've got their constitution. Uh, but, const constitution, but they uh, build up an idol. And God told them not to make idols for themselves, to not make graven images of God. And they make an idol of a calf. They actually say this is Yahweh. They try to, to confine Yahweh to the image of, of creation. And so they are delayed and they wander for 40 years in the wilderness until they cross the jo Jordan. God tells them to divide and conquer. And at that point, they start to enter the land. Now they have the land. They're a nation. They have their people, their constitution, and they've got their land. 
However, God tells them to occupy it fully, and they fail to obey. They don't obey this instruction to follow to occupy the land fully. And so they fall into these cycles of sin in the time and the reign of the judges where they have sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and then silence. And this cycle persists throughout the book of Judges. You get to the point to where there's total corruption, uh, particularly among the, the priests, the priestly order, the Levites, Eli and his sons. And so at this point, they have no king, no capital, no priesthood, no land. The Philistines are taking off, and they reject the theocracy that God has given them. They cry out for a king. They say, we want a king, but they were looking to the external, and so they sought a king with the wrong heart, and, and they appoint Saul. There was a disregard for the Ark of the Covenant in Saul. He was disobedient to God and disregarded God's word. So what did God do? He brought them David. Are you all still with me? The crown with David on it? Excellent. So God brings them David. He is a man after God's own heart. One of the first things that David did was he went and got the ark. He had a, he had a reverence for God's law. He had a reverence for, for, for God himself. He was obedient to the Lord. Um, not perfectly, but he sought to honor the Lord. He had Solomon. Solomon had a a divided heart. We see some really highlights from Solomon, and we see some low points. Um, during his reign, there was peace and prosperity in the land, but he failed particularly in three different ways. God pr- told Solomon and warned him against accruing for himself horses, wives, and money. And the reason was because those things were the key signs of power for most nations. Horses, because it was like your army, your tanks. How many, how, many, how many battleships do you have? How many horses do you have? Uh, money, obviously, because of power, prestige, possessions, and then wives. Why would wives be a downfall, having multiple wives? Turn his heart to idols, absolutely. Also, during that day and age, one of the main ways you would make alliances with other nations and even rule other nations is through intermarriage. Um, with those with those nations. So taking on more wives was absolutely a threat to turning his heart to those foreign nations, which God warned against, but it was also a, a way to uh, gain prestige in surrounding countries and having alliances and so forth as you would, would take on wives from other nations. And so Solomon did this. The result was a split of the kingdom in 931 BC. You have Israel, the 10 tribes, Judah, the southern two tribes, Israel had no good kings at that point and was taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC, and that's the end of Israel that we see. There's no remnant remain um, remaining to be restored back into the land until Christ's return. So that's the end of what we see about the northern tribes up to that point, um, up, to, up to this point. Judah had some good kings, some bad, some good kings. They're taken into the Babylonian captivity in 605 BC. Who do we see really shine forth in the midst of the Babylonian captivity in our Bibles? What prophet? Daniel, exactly. Yep, and God promises a future for uh, Judah. God's not finished with them. God's in control of this. In Daniel, we actually see that the purpose of the captivity was a, uh, a chastening, a refinement to, to cure them of idolatry to give them a respect for the law and to give them hope for a messiah they re-enter the land um in 536 they start their first phase back into the land in 457 we see ezra start to work towards rebuilding what do you remember what ezra sought to rebuild yep and then in the third phase you see nehemiah and he seeks to rebuild what the walls. The way I remember that is Ezra is shorter. It's a temple. The wall is longer. Nehemiah's name is longer. Okay. My memory isn't great. I have to make silly, silly uh, connections there. So they return to prepare for the Messiah, and uh, Christ returns, brings about the body of Christ, uh, royal priesthood, and um, from there we enter into the, the church age, the New Testament age. All right, who wants to go through all that up here in front? No, I'm just joking. We'll get there. 
you should you should feel a competence um, competency to be able to go through that eventually. But we'll we'll just keep reviewing that. Uh, it's in, it's been such a helpful tool to be familiar with that to be able to walk through those those realities, especially as we navigate the Old Testament. Okay. Any questions, comments, any of that? All right, that's our uh, biblical literacy portion for this morning. Go ahead back to your outlines. We're going to pick up where we left off in bibliology this morning. And uh, if you remember last time we were together, we talked about the importance of God's word. Now, every uh, before we jump into that study, I, I meant to, to mention, uh, every week you'll be getting outlines for that study. We're going through this study together, EQ, for the first time. We're building these resources. Our plan is to, uh, at the end of each semester, give a works cited page to you to put into your binder that just acknowledges all the different resources that were used in the composition of, of, uh, of this curriculum, of this, of this program. Uh, a lot of it is from BUILD. Some of it is from the Trust. There's some input from Grace and Granite at Grace Emanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, as well as some other um, biblical doctrines, MacArthur's uh, systematic theology, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, and a number of other resources. And so we're working at, it's kind of a working work cited. We'll give that to you um, so that you can uh, just have that for reference of where these are where these things are coming. If I ever say something that sounds clever or in depth or smart or accurate, I probably stole it from s from another resource. So uh, just up front, I don't take any credit for anything uh, that's that's beneficial. And where there's direct quotes, I'll be noting that in the um, in the book. But just so that you know that's coming. If you have any questions about that, you can can let me know. Okay. So the word of God, we talked about the the importance of God's word that we're going to be spending time. Uh, we did last week and then we're going to spend a little bit of time this week talking about God's word, primarily because God's word is the, the most precious thing that we have from him. And it's absolutely fundamental. That's what we said to the Christian life and knowing God. It's an essential part of Christianity because the Bible, we said, was the exclusive source from God of truth. We have no greater confidence of what truth it consists of than what we see in our Bibles. All Christian doctrine, we remember, all uh, theology, all instruction for Christian practices, they're founded upon and to be based on Scripture itself. And so thinking through the importance of, uh, of knowing our Bible and knowing what we believe about our Bible and, and why is absolutely important. We talked a little bit about the history of the Bible last time. We talked about inspiration, that God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of the original manuscripts, the original writings. We talked about how God's word is inerrant, and the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now, the truth that we see in Scripture is not all truth, right? Deuteronomy 29 tells us there are secret things that belong to the Lord. There, it's not that our Bible is the, the inscripturated reality of everything that's true about everything in existence. But what God wants us to know to be able to love him, worship him, trust him, glorify him, navigate this life for his purposes can be found and is found in Scripture, that doesn't mean that everything that's true about everything is found in Scripture, but everything that we need for life and godliness is found in Scripture. Well, this morning we're going to pick up on authority. I believe that's where we, we didn't get to last time together. So authority. The issue of authority is summed up this way. How, how do we become convinced? How do we know that the Bible really is God's word? How do, how do we know that we can trust God? the Bible? How do you know scripture has authority over your life? How, how do you know you can submit your life to scripture as authority, as the word of God? And as Christians, we believe that the ultimate authority does reside with God and with God alone, that, that God possesses that authority just in his very being as, as the sovereign, as the supreme one. No one gave God authority. No one voted. God didn't earn or, or merit 
the authority that he possesses. God's authority exists as he is the creator of all things and the possessor and sustainer of all things. So God, God has this authority as the sovereign one holding all power. Many have looked to rational evidences to prove the authority of scripture. Archaeological evidences, historical references to people and places and events, these verifiable, tangible events let us know that the Bible is true because, look, God's word said this, and then we went and found this and found out it was true. So our assessment is, in light of the consistency here, it must be authoritative. Some look to the fulfillment of prophecies to see that God's word is authoritative. Some also appeal to church authority, which looks to declarations of councils and early church fathers as the demonstration of the authority of scripture. It's authoritative because those who were in closest proximity to it timeline-wise say so. And so because the church has always believed this, then we embrace it. There's also looking at the existential impact of scripture. This is the it has to be true. Look how my life has been changed by it perspective. Be, because, because of the way that I feel when I read it or because of the change that God's wrought in my life as I read it, that, that is the reason why I believe it's true. Well, this is an oversimplification, but the ultimate problem with these explanations is that they're all subjective, completely subjective. The individual determines, and, and even more so than the danger of the subjectivity to of it, the individual actually determines whether the Bible is true and from God based off of their evaluation standards, whatever they may be. So if your evaluation standard is archaeological evidence and it proved to be true, therefore my assessment is it's true, so it's authoritative. Or I experienced this, and so my assessment is it's authoritative. Or... I see these prophecies that were fulfilled. Therefore, my determination is that it's authoritative. In those, in those circumstances, the uh, authority is actually falling on you to be the determiner of whether or not Scripture is authoritative. So the problem with that is, is that the actual authority that you're seeking to assign to God's word, you're still holding yourself above it because you're the determining factor. You're the one who comes to the conclusive decision because it's proven itself to you. And each one of us is ultimately inadequate as the primary proof that scripture is authoritative. The reality is the proof of the authority of scripture must be the testimony of scripture itself. Scripture is authoritative, not because I've determined because of the evidences it is authoritative. Scripture is authoritative because it's authoritative. It doesn't need me to verify it or to confirm it or to assign it. And scripture is not silent regarding God's authority. God's titles demonstrate his authority as the creator, as the almighty. His character attests to this as the eternal and the immortal and the only God He's omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. He's omniscient. That means he's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at all times and possesses unsearchable wisdom. And this authority is communicated to mankind through God's word, and it is true. God is the ultimate authority, and as such, he alone is the one qualified to attest to Scripture's divine authority. Why can we trust the Bible? Why do we believe that it's authoritative? Not because of my ability to discern, have adequate proof, and then assign its authority. It's authoritative because God said so. And he has the supreme power to declare it as such, and so we trust and we believe it so. God's authority is communicated to mankind through God's word, and it's true. God is the ultimate authority, and as such, he alone is the one qualified to attest to scripture's divine authority and, and, and this is what god does throughout through the internal testimony of the holy spirit to the believer this is why when you're a believer you become what call what paul calls spiritually appraised 
you have you have insight through the power of the Holy Spirit to discern and to believe the things that are true about God. The Holy Spirit, according to the Bible, works through the scriptures to confirm its reliability to the believer, giving the believer certainty that it is indeed the word of God. In light of this, recognizing scripture's authority comes from the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not a subjective determination by the believer. It's interesting, if you read through your Bible, scripture doesn't make a case for itself. It doesn't seek to prove itself through evidences. This is God's word, and this is why it is God's word and why you should believe it. It's just, in the beginning, God created. This is what he did. This is what you should believe. Man fell. God provided a path of, of redemption. It presupposes its authority as it is God's word to man, even from the very beginning of the Bible. God doesn't seek to prove its truthfulness to the readers. There's no reasoned arguments or evidences God tries to make as an appeal to man. God's word as truth simply presents truth and expects the readers to accept it as such. There's element of faith that's brought about through the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to believe what actually is true about God's word. Now listen, surely many evidences demonstrate this reality. So the fact that historical, archaeological finds prove to be true isn't a bad thing. It, it actually affirms what is true about Scripture. But the authority of the Bible, why we can have confidence, isn't because, well, look at this thing over here. That's not why. Because my assessment of this archaeological find and these facts demonstrate enough for me then to believe. Actually, the believer should believe it's God's word because it is so, because he said it is, and because he's the ultimate authority. But we can be encouraged and go, hey, see, it didn't fail again. <laughs> it didn't fail again. It didn't fail again time after time after time where scientists and archaeologists and historians say, these people never existed. This wasn't around then. This wasn't in this location. And then give it enough time. And they, oh, actually it was. Oh, actually they did. Oh, actually, look what we found. Time and time again, God's word proves to be true, but it's not true because it has been proven. It is true because it is true. Do you understand the difference there? You can also say, hey, God's word is true, and look how it's impacted my life. That's okay. That's good. We should rejoice in the work that God's word does in our lives. But it's not true because... I determine, look at what it did in my life, therefore now I'm willing to accept its truth. We need to yield to God and submit and obey and, and believe that it's true because God has said so. So we consider the, the nature of the inward witness of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We find that the objection to this reality is that this is a circular argument. It's subjective itself. If you're saying don't go to subjective arguments that are on your own determination uh, because it's just, you know, I, I believe that the Bible's authoritative because this proved to be true. Well, how did you know it's true? Because they said so. Well, how do you know that they know? Because they did the science, the science says this. How do you know the science is reliable? Because they said so. And you get into this circular kind of reasoning, right? Well, if you say... The reason the Bible's authoritative is because God says so. Well, where, di where did God say it was so? Well, in the Bible. So you believe the Bible's true because the Bible says it's true. That's circular. Yep. <laughs> yeah, but every, every explanation of authority is ultimately subjective and, and, and circular. Wh who made that person the authority? How do they know that their reasoning is trustworthy? In fact, God's, God's word would say that every reasoning of depraved man is not trustworthy. There's an agenda to suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. So there's no impartial views. There's no non-subjective perception of what's taking place. There's no, hey, we're just going to look at the facts. Everybody comes with presuppositions, with decisions that they have to make about where authority is derived. Most most find that authority within themselves and God says find that authority within me believe what I've written scripture will prove itself to be true but us determining that it was true is not what gives its authority it possesses its authority as 
God's word. All right. What questions do you have? Comments? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Prove it. Prove it. <laughs> my mom, my dad. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yep. Excellent. Excellent point. Okay, we're going to keep moving. We're going to talk just briefly about a couple other components of God's word this morning. First is just, I want to introduce introduce you, and you're going to need to turn to the right to the outline for today. So we're jumping ahead a couple pages. You should be on semester one, week two, word of God, part two, and then comma, new man worksheet. Is everybody on that page? And then the blue highlighted section is hermeneutics. Everybody with me? Excellent. So we're going to just do a, a, a little bit more wrap-up on the Word of God. And today is just going to be a, a very brief introduction to the term hermeneutics. We're going to spend a lesson in the future talking more specifically about how to think through reading our Bibles. But hermeneutics is, is just the term to, to describe the study of the process and the rules of Bible interpretation. So when we use the word hermeneutic or hermeneutics, what we're referring to is, is what is the standard or rules for which we understand or interpret or read our Bible? Does that make sense? Now, some different methods that exist. You might, you might have you heard of allegory? Uh, it's, it's the idea of I'm going to communicate something, but it's really a picture to communicate something, some sort of hidden meaning or different meaning that the, the words are communicating. There's also this abstract method of, you know, the, the word of God is living and active. So whatever it means to me in that moment, that's what it's communicating. So the words don't matter so much, but what really matters about what I'm reading and what God's doing is the impression that it leaves on my heart and how I feel about what I read afterwards. We would reject both of those things. We would hold to a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic. What that means is that what God's words say are what they mean, the literal meaning of God's word as we understand it. Functioning within grammar, how words work, right? There's subjects and verbs and predicates and adjectives and adverbs and, and so forth. And in English language, we have those descriptors to communicate how words are functioning as they're grouped together to form an idea. And so we believe that scripture is communicating in the literal sense what it intends to communicate, functioning within the the grounds of, of grammar. And then in the historical context. So there was a, a human author that was carried, as we talked about inspiration, right? God breathed, God's Holy Spirit worked through the human author with his own personality and tendencies and all of those things. And yet God superintended his word to come through that man. So you have a, a human author, but then you have a large A divine author always present in scripture, which is God himself speaking and so from that 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 individual was writing being moved by the holy spirit to a specific audience in a specific time and so when we read god's word we can have full confidence that it is from god and yet we need to do our due diligence and labor to understand what do these words mean what is going on what's the historical context and go from there so we're going to talk more about that. Some things when we think about literal, sometimes we think that you can't use figures of speech if you're literal. That's false. We use figures of speech all the time, and I literally mean what I mean when using a figure of speech. So if Jesus says, I'm the door, no one enters into the kingdom but through me. Jesus isn't saying he is a physical wooden or concrete or, or whatever door. Right? He's using a, a picture that he's actually explaining and describing to talk about entrance. So when we talk about literal, some people's argument against that, some people's argument against that is, well, that doesn't allow for estimates or figures of speech or different things like that. And, and that's not what we're getting at. We're talking about, um, you know, 
applying meaning or instilling meaning that actually doesn't exist. And so we would hold that there was one, one meaning in the text that God intended and many applications, many implications, depending on the text of, of what that means for the believer's life. And again, we'll, we'll study hermeneutics more, but it's, it's important to be familiar with that term. I want to talk just a little bit about how this all intersects with our hearts. When we think about God's word, that it's authoritative, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's from God himself. It's, it's, it's God's instruction for man. It's his revealed uh, truth about himself that we see from scripture. What are some impacts that we should consider when reading God's word and, and how we come to God in his word? And we talked a little bit last week about shepherding our hearts, coming to the word of God, to meet with the God of the word. What are some implications of these realities for our heart as we consider our Bible? Well, first of all, we can have confidence of the clarity of scripture. We can have confidence when we read our Bible that it can be understood, that we can, that we can know God. God wrote his word to be understood. We see that in Revelation 1.3. We also know that God's word is to be, it's to be meditated upon. There's blessings for the one who is in God's word. We know that from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not, and that's seek counsel of the wickeds. Uh, What is it? Stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What will he be like? A tree that is planted firmly, bearing much fruit in season and out of season. So the fact that God's word is, is clear, it's to be understood, it's to be meditated on, it's to, it's to be obeyed. He, he gave us his word so that we might become pure and, and grow in understanding of him. And, and while the Bible is clear and is meant to be understood, there is a reality that for those who are not in Christ, they lack the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't have the same power in their lives in the sense of them being able to see what God has revealed to be true about himself. There has to be a spiritual awakening that takes place at salvation where then the believer is spiritually appraised and has eyes to see the truth as it is. But the issue is never a clarity of God's word. The issue is a clarity of the heart to be able to see God and know God from scripture. (coughs) The Bible is for every believer to benefit from. And listen, this is this is crucial. This is a, a direct attack on the, the Catholic Church and especially the Catholic Church. Well, well really, even today. But uh, every believer sh- benefits from, should benefit from, and should not feel inadequate to read, understand, benefit, and obey, benefit from, and obey the Bible. Right? The early Catholic Church would prop up priests and bishops and, and wouldn't even read the Bible in the language of the common tongue because they wanted to possess the authority to tell their people what God's word was saying or what truth they should believe or or whatnot. That's not God's intention for his people, and that's not God's intention for his word. God has written his word so that every believer can have access to the truth that God has revealed. And it doesn't matter if you've had 10 years of seminary or if you're an hour-old believer. God's word is precious, more valuable than all the riches of the world, for every believer and is accessible and is clear and to be understood for the believer. We also find that God's word is necessary. We need the truth that is found in scripture. It's not an optional bonus for the Christian. I'm going to accept the general ideas of the gospel, which you actually can't even understand the, the, the gospel without scripture, but I'm going to accept the gospel. But then, you know, what the, the, word, the word of God is for spiritually elite. It's for those who are like going to be pastors or or like the super Christians. That's not ever how God's word is presented in scripture. It's necessary for the believer. Wayne Grudem says this, the necessity of scripture means that the Bible is necessary for knowing the gospel, maintaining spiritual life and for knowing God's will, but is not necessary for knowing that God exists or for knowing something about God's character and moral laws. In fact, the believer is called to actually crave the word, to long for the word, which is interesting. Usually we think about cravings or desires or longings as something that's reactive. I smell something good. Those, oh, those, those, those cookies smell delicious. I've got, I've got a craving. I've got a sweet tooth. So there's, there's something that goes on, and, and we're just kind of subject to our own cravings. 
that's not how God presents the command for us, every believer, to crave his word. You are actually instructed to have a desire for God's word and to cultivate that. And we actually see, it's interesting in, in 1 Peter 2, that putting off sin enhances your, cra- it aids your craving. Laying aside malice, slander, envy, deceit, hypocrisy, laying aside these things, crave the word, long for the word. And he talks about longing for the word like a newborn baby. And not because he's talking to, to newborn Christians. It's, it's actually the manner in which every Christian should long for the word is like a newborn baby longs for milk. Psalm 119 verse 9, how do we keep our way pure? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. And just a question, f- question for consideration. When you think about navigating this life for the glory of God, where do you find your heart being drawn to go, prone to go first? Ah, life is really stressful right now. Just need to get away. Just need a vacation. Life is really stressful. Just need to watch a ball game. I just need some time to relax. This circumstance is really hard. Ah, I, I, need, I need some counseling outside of the word of God. Secular counseling. Support groups. Or do you go to God's word? Or go to those that can help you know God's word? Do you recognize God's word as the sufficient means from God to build up his children, to care for his people? And do you have confidence that it is both necessary and sufficient to give you all that you need for life and godliness? How desperate are you for God's word? When we talk about shepherding our heart with God's word and coming to the word of God to meet with the God of word, the word, how desperate are you? When you wake up, how much is on your mind to get a cup of coffee versus how much is on your mind to get in the word? That's a good revealer of what, level of necessity you view God's word in your life. Do you view it as something that you're desperate for, that you need? When you think about evangelism, what's your greatest aid? Do you run to evidences and experiences and and all of these other types of things, or do you go to God's word believing that the power of the gospel is what God uses to bring about salvation? Christian living, fighting sin, decision-making, You're given a job. You're given an opportunity. You're trying to navigate how to care for your children. What kinds of things do you run to first to provide input on how to navigate life's various circumstances? God's word is necessary. It's also sufficient. John MacArthur says this, All truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. God's word is is more than enough to know how to be husbands, to know how to be fathers, to know how to be employers, to know how to be employees, to know how to fight sin, to know how to deal with anxiety, to know how to address depression, to know how to deal with lust, to know how to deal with coveting, all of these things, to know how to cultivate purity. God's word is sufficient. We can have full confidence of this. God's word is completely trustworthy all right any final questions on that yeah That's a great question. The clarity of God's word is not grounded upon the mutual acceptance of various humans. It's, it's clear because God says it is and because it's from God. And so, again, kind of the, the circular argument, but the reality is. So the, the question um, for those that listen later or watch online is how can we trust that the Bible's clear when super mega theologians, even, even trustworthy godly men, right, spiritually appraised men, have differing views on various theological um, concepts. Uh, the clarity isn't to be demonstrated by, I mean, ultimately you're, you're looking to less authority, which is actually sinful, to try to confirm the clarity of something that is sinless and pure and from God. And so 
the, the, the reality is, is that each one of us, even though God's word is clear, are still in a mixed condition, which we're going to talk about in a moment. There's still sin, residual sin. Uh, we don't understand everything perfectly. I can't remember who it was, but I remember hearing at a shepherd's conference, maybe Tom or Jeff, maybe you can remember, where there was a statistic that somebody gave out. It was somebody like uh, like Jonathan Edwards, or somebody said the greatest theologian is right 80% of the time or 70% of the time. Do you remember that? It, it, this was maybe like a decade ago. Um, they were just talking that we just don't get everything right. Um, and so it, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise that two godly men laboring hard would have different views on truth. It's not an issue with scripture. That scripture was unclear. Um, God wrote to be understood. He didn't write to conceal truths. He wrote to reveal truths. Now, do we get everything right? Do we understand it all? No, we have residual sin. We have to work to understand the historical context. What's going on? What do these things mean? What do these words mean? W you know, uh, we have to labor for that, and we just don't always get it right. Okay. All right. We're going to transition, and we are going to spend a, um, I don't know, maybe a shamefully, <laughs> hopefully it's not a shamefully, short amount of time on a uh a, a resource that is to be treasured a absolutely treasured you should have received this god's transformation of man trifold when you came in this is the fruit of grace bible church and its elders laboring very hard to communicate in a comprehensive and yet succinct manner precious 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 truths for the believer so this is from grace bible church if you turn in your uh, notes to discipline one, the heart, we're going to talk about God's transformation of man. And this is going to be a 20,000 foot, maybe 40,000 foot flyover for us. Um, many of you have have this sheet already, have gone through this in depth and build. Um, and, and, and there's a huge benefit there. If this is new to you, uh, and, and even if it's not, I, I encourage you, we, we don't have formal homework in EQ, uh, but your informal homework is to refresh yourself with this fold, um, with this work worksheet, and look up the passages because these these are unbelievably precious realities. But what I want to do is I just want to give an overview. This is meant to uh, give an explanation of what Scripture describes for the unregenerate man, the converted man, and then the glorified man. And so three states of a, 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 a human, a, a person, a man or woman, three spiritual states of that person, and two key events that transition those states that are found within. So the first state that we see is, is the unregenerate man. And we're going to walk through this. The chart summarizes the street, three states of the believer's transformation via two radical events. Those two radical events are regeneration and resurrection. First we see first we see the unregenerate man and what are the key characteristics? What's true about this unregenerate man? Well, the reality is everybody is born into this unregenerate state. So if you're looking, you should have your folder and be on discipline 1. We're going to be working through that. And if you're looking at the trifold it's kind of the top left corner under uh, the bold unregenerate man. You have an unmixed, that means you're sinful, you're not able to glorify God condition, sinful condition. This is who a person is without Jesus. This is what we would describe as, as total depravity or what scripture would say in, in Ephesians 2, a person who is dead in their transgressions and sins, dead in their trespasses and sins. This person is dead in sins, walk in, they walk in their sins, they live in their lusts of the flesh, they're a child of wrath, they have no hope, they're without God, they're in the domain of darkness, they're foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, they spend their life in malice and envy, they're hateful, they hate others, they're alienated from God, hostile towards God, engaged in evil deeds, and so on. You can just read all the way through there. Those are all descriptions of the unregenerate man. 
who is dead in their transgressions and sins. Well, some have said, listen, I understand that everybody sins, but there's some good people out there, right? Well, good by, by the standard of whom, right? And, and good for what purpose? If someone is good for a reason other than glorifying God, is it actually good? Not according to God. There's none who do righteous. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. All, all are under God's wrath. So just because somebody can do a selfless loving deed for somebody doesn't mean that that selfless loving deed is for the purpose of glorifying God. And no unbeliever does any act for the purpose of wanting to submit and yield to God for his glory. That's only the work of a believer that would want to do that, who has a changed changed life who has been regenerate so the unregenerate man before christ this is true of every single one of us we're in an unmixed condition what does that mean we're not able to glorify god sometimes but struggle to glorify god at other times we're unmixed we sin we're in a we're in a state in a disposition of enmity towards god that's what scripture would say that's how it describes us there's no fight within us against sin for jesus we're dominated by it and enslaved to sin sin rules our faculties unable to shepherd our heart away from sin and to god we're under god's wrath and we're under god's judgment in that state we're under the wrath of god then what takes place a regeneration event do you see that under the unregenerate man you see a, a regeneration event on your trifold this is accomplished by god in the gospel right now we're on page three of your outline the regeneration event this is where you are declared righteous this is an actual event there is something called progressive sanctification and that is where somebody is made more like Christ over time they're they're sanctified they're made more holy over time progressively sanctified there is not progressive salvation salvation is an event it's a work of God to give new birth new life to be made a new creation and it's a once for all time event God saves somebody and they're saved they're regenerate they're brought from spiritual death to spiritual life John 10 all whom the Father has given me, I've lost none. God has never saved somebody, and then they've unsaved themselves. And in this, they're, they're a new creation. They're born again. They're in, there's also a positional sanctification. Scripture, oftentimes we think of sanctification as the process of being made holy over time. That's definitely true. There's also a positional sanctification. The word sanctification just means to be made holy, to be set apart. And so there's a reality where positionally you are set apart unto God, and you can see some references there upon salvation. You're justified. There's justification. You're declared righteous before God. You're, it, there's imputation where you are given God's righteousness. And we see that in 2 Corinthians 5 where uh, you're a new creation, or a uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in Christ. You've received Christ's righteousness. You're declared righteousness. You're given a righteousness that was not your own. You're also adopted. You have a union with Christ. Your sin is removed. The, the, the wrath of God is satisfied through propitiation. You've been redeemed and reconciled and forgiven. And the old man has been crucified. Who you once were in that unmixed sinful condition has been put to death. And now you're a new creation in Christ. With that regeneration event comes specific benefits for the believer. Components that come that are a benefit and a blessing to the believer. At that point, you're loved by God. You're indwelled by the Spirit. You have Christ living inside of you. You're a member of the body. You're members one another with the body of Christ. You have access to God. You're under his grace. You're saved from wrath. You're free from condemnation. You're unable Right? Romans 8, nothing can separate you from Christ. We just talked about that, a once-for-all regeneration event when you are saved. You possess the fruit of the Spirit. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now, this, re this regenerate man, when that event happens of, of regeneration that's brought about by the gospel, 
faith and repentance in Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, and all these benefits come to you, and this, this position this positional state changes for you, well, now you are the regenerate man. That's the middle of your trifold. You are in Christ. You are declared righteous. You are viewed as righteous. You possess Christ's righteousness. At any point in time, if you you were to die, you would be justified before God, not because of your own deeds or your own acts, but because of Christ's imputed righteousness to you, even though that, you're still in a mixed condition. Well, what do we mean by a mixed condition? That means you're a new creation in Christ. You're able to glorify God. You're able to fight sin, but we still live in this flesh. There's residual remnants of our depraved state. There's still, there's still realities of, of propensity or proneness to sin. And we're called to have repentance unto salvation, but we're also called to continually repent, to confess our sins to one another, to turn from from our sinful ways, to to have ongoing faith in God. How do we live in this body? Galatians 2.20, we've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. The life we live in the body, we live by what? Faith. There's ongoing faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. There's a progression into Christ's likeness. This is the progressive sanctification that takes place over time where we're brought from lesser glory to greater glory. There's freedom from slavery to sin and a call to no longer present our members to sinful lusts and passions, but to present our members to righteousness. And so we're called to to work hard towards our salvation. And in this new man condition, this mixed condition, we find two realities. And if you look on your trifold, You can look under the regenerate man. You see the mixed condition of the regenerate man is characterized by. Then if you look at the next bold, the mixed condition of the regenerate man requires. You guys see that there? It's also on your outline on page four. It's the the third kind of circle. (laughs) The mixed condition of the regenerate man requires God's relentless transformation of the believer. We need God to continue to be at work in us. We talked about that in Philippians. God continues to work. He continues to sanctify. He he is committed to the believer's progression in godliness. And the believer is called to diligently and intentionally and vigorously pursue holiness, to put off the deeds of the flesh, to put on the fruits of righteousness, to pursue what is pure and right, to, to make effort, to work hard. There's also a reality of the believer's wariness about indwelling sin. Be aware of it. Be on guard against it. Fight against it. Struggle against it. Don't give in. Don't don't continue to live as you once did prior to Christ, but live in light of who Christ has made you. And then we see the believer's serious perseverance or assured perseverance. If you're a believer in Christ, you are going to continue in Christ. You're going to persevere to the end. What's the greatest mark? of a believer, well, their love for one another, but what's the greatest indicator that should give, conf- give confidence to somebody's sincerity of faith? That they persevere to the end. Every believer perseveres to the end. Are you a believer? Was he a believer when he died? He was a believer. <laughs> that's that's an incredible assurance and, and benefit and sweet encouragement is the believer's serious perseverance to the end. Now, in the, in the mixed condition, the regenerate man They're able not to sin, and they are now able to please God. There's a fight within. There's conviction over and godly sorrow over and change that comes to fruition against sin and for Jesus. They're now slaves to God, and they're to live as such. There's residual sin and regeneration are uh, uh, evident in all faculties, thoughts, emotions, motives, and actions. We find that where we find ourselves, our mind wanders, and we go, why, why am I thinking? I don't want to think that way. Before, all we did was wanted to sin. We didn't want to fight against our sin. If we fought against sin, it was because of other sin that we wanted to entertain. I'm not going to sin this way because I have sin this way that I want to preserve. I'm not going to sin in this overt lust because I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me. There wasn't fear of God in us. There wasn't submission to God. The believer is able to shepherd their heart away from sin and to God. And one of the sweetest realities is that the believer is not under God's wrath or judgment. There's no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ. Now, what's the next event? Death, departing from this land, dying, going to be home with our Lord. So on your outline, if you're looking in your folder, you should be on page 5. And on the trifold, we're looking under death, departing the land of the dying and going home. The land of the dying, that's this world. Everyone's dying. Everyone's headed that direction. When we die, we depart the land of the dying, and we go home. We're, we're not citizens of this land anymore. We have a heavenly home. In that death event, there's a, a disintegration of inner man from outer man. There's a, a safe journey home. You're unseparated from Jesus. You're with Jesus. The believer is still alive. Uh, oftentimes, it's referred to in Scripture as asleep. This is precious to God when his saints come home. This is gain for the believer when they go home. When the believer dies and is with God, then we find the believer in the state of the heavenly man with Christ. To leave this life is to be with Christ. In this point, the man is unmixed again, but in a very different way. Man was unmixed. We were unmixed prior to salvation where all we would do is sin. Then we were in a mixed condition, and then at death, mankind is no longer mixed. You resemble Jesus. When you see him, you will be like him. You're seen for what you really are in Christ. You're blameless and full of joy at that point. There's no death or sadness, no curse, no night. Key descriptions of this future condition is that you're in an unmixed condition. You're unable to sin. So at one point, you were unable to not sin, then you were able to not sin, but still sin. And now in this unmixed, this unmixed heavenly man condition, you're unable to sin. You're unable to displease God. Just think about how wonderful that will be. There's no fight within against sin because you're unable to. You're perfectly enslaved to God. You're walking perfectly in accordance with who you are. Perfect righteousness in all faculties, thoughts, emotions, motives, actions. There's no need to shepherd your heart away from sin into God because your heart is there. You're enveloped in God's joy. You're with Christ. Now, during this time, until Christ returns, for the believer who dies, they don't have a physical body. Their spirit is with God. At the point of the rapture, okay, if you see that resurrection or rapture, the point of the resurrection or the rapture for believers who are alive during the rapture they bypass death to be with jesus they're caught up with him in the sky instantaneous physical transformation this body is done and they're given a new glorified body the saints that were in christ before will rise first at this event and will be given new bodies so at this rapture resurrection event every believer that has died prior to this event will be given a new body at this point Every believer in Christ during the rapture will instantaneously be given a new body, a glorified body. And at this point, you are considered the, the glorified man or having a glorified body. And this is what God gives to believers to have to enjoy him perfectly for all, all time. At this point, it, there's an integration of perfected inner man and a glorified body. No, no continued fight against sin in this new body uh, that has been done away with from the, the previous flesh. There's no fallen nature to this new glorified body, but you possess this new physical glorified body. And we see that the dead in Christ rise first and then raptured saints follow. Some final observations on your outline. You can turn to page six. And as we go through uh, EQ, we're going we're gonna to come back to this sheet. So keep it in your folder if you can when you come, uh, particularly on days where we review Discipline 1 and Shepherding the Heart. We're going to dive into some of these things in more depth. This is meant to be an overview, a foundation for us to, to build on. Uh, some final observation. The Christian today is no longer in the unmixed sinful condition of the old man. This is huge. You're not enslaved to sin any longer. Yes, Tom. Anybody else not have five and six? Okay. <laughs> I think it's just the packet you grabbed. Yep. 
So the Christian today is no longer an unmixed sinful condition of the old man. This is this is wonderful. We're just we're not enslaved to sin. Listen, if you have hidden lives, uh, a hidden life of sin, um, you're not you're not unable to repent from that. You're not unable to change. If you've had a lifelong struggle against certain sins and haven't shared them and they're just persisting in your life, you can have hope to overcome these things. The Christian today is not yet in an unmixed, sinless condition with Christ. We still sin. We need to fight that sin. We need to walk in repentance. The Christian's position before God is perfect, but his practice is progressing. And there's great comfort and hope for the believer that when we do sin, we're not under condemnation for that sin. We don't have to fear eternal judgment. We can actually, in reverential, loving fear of God, pursue holiness for God's glory. All right, we're going to end there. There's some additional ministry passages we'll cover in the future. Keep looking at those. I encourage you to review them, use them as a tool to grow. And there's some questions for consideration that you can look at at home, and we will spend some time in our groups.